Hello everyone, welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. I am your host, David Thackeray. I'm a hospitality professional with two decades of experience in the bar and restaurant industry. My pursuit in this podcast is to have difficult conversations of our industry and of society as a whole. My guest today is Sean Beck. He is a Houston beverage professional. He's a sommelier that works for a group that has a few very successful restaurants that have been part of our community for a very long time. Um, Backstreet Cafe, Hugo's, uh, Sochi, as well as Caracol. Um, Hugo's, uh, of course, is named after the uh, um, chef Hugo Ortega, who won the James Beard uh, Award in 2017. Part of that success was based on Sean's beverage program over at Hugo's. thing about it is that his whole entry into the industry was kind of by happenstance. How did you get into the industry then? Talking uh, about your was, background as a, as a, as a SOM. Yeah, I was waiting tables at Backstreet in college. I was getting my English and history degrees at the University of Houston Honors College and uh, kind of fell into it and... Uh, you know, I, I was considering going to law school and got kind of uh, off the path into doing wine because we had wine over here and the owner noticed that I knew more or I read more about wine than our people and sold more. And so she asked me to help taste for the program, which uh, like a month or so later ended up asking me to buy for the program and run the bar program. And, you know, so I started doing the same thing with cocktails. And I'd worked uh, earlier in college, I'd worked as an assistant like microbrewer which is really just a fancy say away. I cleaned everything, but I mean, I learned about the beer making process and then I got into wine and then I got into the cocktail culture and, uh, you know, really ramped up the cocktail part of my, uh, background when I was a Psalm because what, 17, 18 years ago, they had me working brunches, right? Sunday brunch was kind of like a developing thing and Backstreet has always done those. Uh-huh. And, there was not a lot of people coming in to drink wine on Sunday brunch other than mimosas. And so I just like, I'd rather than be bored out of my mind, I started just introducing people to craft cocktails. Like we would we would juice pomegranates when they were in season. I would go to the farmer's markets, the airline market for Mexican ingredients, or go out to Bel Air and hit some of the Asian grocery stores and find what I could and incorporate those into the cocktail program. And, try and get people excited about that as well and, and it just became this kind of whole evolution where'd you uh, learn that i mean where'd you get the ideas from that 17 the years ago i mean i mean i obviously read some books uh you know some of the classic cocktail books as i was getting into it about these and so part of it was like showing drinks that have disappeared and a lot of it was just like well what what ingredient is in season what ingredients are my kitchen using and how can i recreate them and so it was a lot of like trial and error and i would you know i would play around using marmalades and jams and different cocktail recipes and syrups and uh different herbs that i could get my hands on or that we might have been growing i mean you know a lot of it was just banging your head against the wall there was like a three-week period i remember where i kept making naked bloody marys where i would like strain heirloom tomatoes through cheesecloth and, and infuse them with herbs and they'd yeah. be sort of clear and translucent in a martini glass with, and everyone's like what the heck? I mean, it was, it was like 15 years too early for something like that. And so, you know, a lot of it was enthusiasm, but maybe it just wasn't, there wasn't enough uh, uh, bandwidth 
of people being excited about it. But we, we did have followers of people doing it. And then it got even more popular once we opened up Hugo's. Because, like, uh, when we were doing Hugo's, I, I was out of it. I was like, well, we won't do any frozen margaritas. And we won't do anything batched. And we won't, we won't do any, like, uh, sweet sour mixes or none of that. And so from day one, that program was built around like what I had been working on at Backstreet, but taking the Mexican food and like, you know, we were introducing people to Mezcal who'd never had it. And we were doing Palomas where no one had seen a Paloma. And I, I feel like we did a, a very good job at introducing like the bar scene and restaurant scene and guests to all of those to the point where like, you know, uh, I started seeing Palomas creep up on every menu in Houston. <laughs> yeah. What year was that? That you opened I mean, Hugo's? Well, Oh, uh, when we opened up Hugo's was 2003. So, oh, wow. you know, I mean, look, we were down this, like, Anvil opened up uh, four years after us or something like that. So, like, I started seeing all their bartenders come over pre-shift and start asking me all these questions about tequila and mezcal and doing our drinks. And I'd see other craft community people come in. And you could, you could sense that things were changing, that, like, you know, people like uh, Bobby and Alba and, and, and some of the other like bars were really starting to kind of cold these ideas and, and obviously those people doing it is way cooler than someone like me doing it or a <laughs> restaurant doing it and so I think it helped create this kind of movement uh, in the city and, and like all of a sudden every place you go wanted to have somebody designing cocktails and wanted the cocktails to be uh, personalized yeah yeah, no, they opened six years after you because I was in 2009. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was like it was a few years after us, and like, and it was great to have them down the street. People got excited, and it was kind of a change in Montrose. Yeah, I remember that uh, in 2008, I was working at the Grove, and um, uh, Ryan Pera uh, had the uh, the naked uh, Bloody Mary. Uh, he was doing the the water for that, and um, there was a craft cocktail program there. They they. The manager got to uh, MIB that year. Oh so, wow! Yeah, so it was. Uh, I didn't. I was waiting tables at the time, so I thought the shit was cool, but it, I didn't really realize what was what was exactly happening. Because then after that, I ended up in uh, bartending in Washington Avenue, and so you know how that <laughs> went. <laughs> A lot of Red Bull. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, and I took so much shit. I I never carried Red Bull, so people would get upset with me, and I. You know, we wouldn't do frozen margaritas, which, which like, made people so angry. <laughs> and then I would start doing also, like, it, I wouldn't serve, like, the big brands. I'd serve, like, little local, small brands. And so, we, I mean, we were the, we were the first bar uh, restaurant in Texas to serve Del Baguette. Oh, wow. We were the first one to have, like, a, one of the, you know, that single species mezcal on there. And so, we've, we've done some cool things over the year. And, and I definitely think the cocktail program at Caracol and then again later at Sochi uh, influenced people. And, and you know, uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll see. <laughs> you end up seeing your drink on a lot of other people's menus eventually. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, either in visual form or in exact recreation form where they've just changed the name. Which okay. I guess imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I guess so, but I just don't. I'm against the uh, changing the names uh, of stuff, especially classics or someone else's drink, because in in uh, you know this has been my thing for a while. Because in New York, right, the uh, the reason why some of those cocktails become modern classics is because bars put somebody else's drink 
on their menu, right? But they put it as the way it the the um, the creator wanted it, the same name, the same specs, everything. And so now all of a sudden people start seeing, you know, the penicillin, for instance, yeah, all around, and then now they're they're curious about it. And I think that when people start changing names on someone else's creation, I take offense to that. But so you're you're taking the, you take this way better than 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 I would, uh, because I I find that. Uh, more insulting than flattering. Yeah, and I, I always thought if you were gonna, uh, I, and again, I, you, if you wanted to put someone else's drink on the menu, uh, I didn't necessarily have a problem with it. I just think you should credit the bar that the inspiration is coming from, or the bartender. Uh, to me, I was always more like, I don't want to do anyone. I don't want to do an exact copy of what anyone's doing. And so, if I saw something I really liked, I might try and recreate it in a different way, you know, and, and see how I could make something new from what I saw. So if like, right. I went out and I had a version of a lion's tail that you did trying to recreate that in a, in a totally different way or, you know, going and have Alba's uh, cherry bounce sour and trying to recreate that in a different way or what can I do that's in its homage but is different. Right, right. No, I agree with that. Uh, that's always fun um, because especially whenever you kind of get caught by surprise. You know, you, yeah, you sort like, of, it happens often. Where I'm like, wow, I would not have thought to use that combination. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that was very interesting. Yeah, Alba had a julep with uh, a sparkling. I can't remember what. Oh, what yeah, it. yes. The Serdan Bougie with the champagne grapes. That was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I had I had done something with champagne grapes, but mine was so different. Uh, and I really loved hers. I had uh, Tom Ford, you know, the designer. Uh-huh. He introduced a line of uh, uh, male uh, colognes in Houston at Neiman Marcus, and they asked me if I would do a, a wine pairing with his colognes. Uh-huh. One of the more one of the more bougie things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> it's really interesting and fascinating to, to pair wine with cologne, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And I said to him, "I go, well, as people are arriving, why don't I do something for them so that we're not jumping in at unequal times for the wine pairing?" And I said, I'm going to create a cocktail. And I go, great. So I, I created this cocktail. It ended up being called the Violet Hour, but I created it for Tom Ford. And it was the idea of, like, fragrance and fashion and texture. And I'd used uh, champagne grapes with dried lavender, uh, lemon creme de violet, bubbly, and, and uh, 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 pisco. Which one? Uh, and pisco, sorry. Oh, nice. And it was like just super fragrant, aromatic. But, and then I had edible rose petals in there. So the whole thing had like this very kind of cool look to it. And I, I ended up calling it the Violet Hour because it had that creme de violet in that color kind of yeah. ran throughout it. But I was like, uh, that, that is what I had done was champagne grapes. And then I saw what uh, Alba done. And I was like, oh, that's so clever. I hadn't thought about using it that way. Yeah. And I loved that drink so much uh, when she opened up Julep. Yeah. No, that was, that was pretty tasty and clever. Um, Shit, I would have done some trade with uh, Tom Ford. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, can I get a shoot out of this? Yeah. And then, I'll, and then I'll never fit into again, but for 15 minutes, I'm going to look very fashionable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what's so, so what's next? What's in the uh, what's in the cards? Remember, what are you guys planning? So, I mean, obviously, we're riding this way. We don't know what's going to happen so we're, we're still trying to get Sochi open, which I think will be what happens next. And I'm, I'm just trying to cultivate ways where we keep up engagement with people. I don't think the online thing will be going away anytime soon. And frankly, 
if it's done right, it can be a lot of fun. And so, absolutely, it was. I'm, I'm going to keep doing that, and the fact that I can bring in these guests from around the country in without like having them get there to fly here is great. And so we're just. You know, I've, I've got some ideas that I want to do for the cocktail program. So when I find a little more time, that'll be kind of next up. I, I think we're, for a while there, uh, everyone just wanted comfort. And so to me, the idea of like, and, and that was kind of going on anyway, right? Uh, was comfort as you see all these like terrible canned cocktails popping up. People just want easy and accessible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we're in that kind of zone anyway. And so we, we should be now getting away from those 15 component cocktails and take a bar 10 or 10, 15 minutes to make and just are too busy and simplifying. But I, I think you want to, I think you still want creativity, but it's got to be simple creativity. It's got to be like these very slight, but like point, poignant details. Yeah. I like to call it smart creativity. You have, you can use more exotic ingredients, but you don't have to use 10 of them. No, that's very true. And so I think that that's, that's the full circle of what we're doing, especially if you're doing homemade ingredients like a, a syrup. You can get really complicated with that syrup, but that's one of four components. And so the, it's, it's prep uh, before the guest gets there is not something that the guest has to sit there. And although people do enjoy watching us work, eventually it's like, man, I can't even get a, a buzz in this place because, you know, it takes... 20 minutes for each cocktail and so i think that that the simplicity of of the amount of ingredients um is also going to be naturally more approachable and i just think it's also the reality that you know uh you're gonna have to operate with less staff now you're gonna have to have more streamlined you're gonna have to make sure you can serve easier and better right and, i mean i was we we get takeout food, you know, my family and I do at least once a week just to try and support local restaurants. And you're like, you want to support them all, but you're also kind of come away going, wow, you know, sometimes they've really thought it through and sometimes they just really thought the dish through and they didn't think about the mechanism of transporting it. And I think that's kind of the same thing with the cocktail. They only thought about what the cocktail would be like if you made it on a quiet day for one person. Correct. And oftentimes it's like, no, you got to design the recipe for the cocktail on your busiest day with your worst staff. Like if your worst bartender can't execute the cocktail, then you should throw out the cocktail. <laughs> or rehire. <laughs> yeah, or rehire. But, but the point is you have to design it so your least qualified staff members can still successfully execute it. Absolutely. Because like, I don't care what sort of establishment you have, you're not going to always have like amazing people in every single position no. like maybe they'll eventually get there with training but they're not always getting to be there inherently true true pasala in spanish means come on in so we start to walk into the room and let me tell you guys something if you grew up listening to vicente fernandez from a young age and you get the opportunity to meet him it is seriously a religious experience. <laughs> My mom and I are entering the room. The only thing missing is the freaking. <laughs> you don't look at him, you look at the floor. Out of respect, you just look at the floor. Come on, Ma. We get all the way up to him and I see boots. And when I see the boots, my mom and I both just. 
He knows what you're doing. He knows you're checking him out. So what he does is he poses, okay? Vicente stands there and he poses. He'll have the sombrero, the hat, to his side. And then he doesn't look at you. He looks away. And he sticks his chest out. And he stands there looking like a big-ass bottle of Tapatio at Costco. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. There has been some, obviously, adjustments that a lot of bars have been able to do. Some have not. Um, people are getting creative, and uh, and some things are working. Others are not working. I thought that the Zoom training session with Diplomatico was really well done because basically I just went, picked up the food with the sample uh, um, rums, and then uh, at the at the time, 7.30, we, we got on Zoom and we talked about it with the master uh, blender, master distiller, and, and and it was great. So how yeah, did that I come about? Well, I've been doing these wine dinners for a while. Uh, like every Saturday night I do a wine dinner, but that was kind of really designed to be more towards the kind of consumer, kind of like a, a date night, and I would have various winemakers on. And... There's a pretty loyal whiskey following here in Houston, and I, I had, early in Corona, I'd started doing this thing on Wednesday nights where we made this, like, really spicy chicken sandwich that that community loves, and so I started doing, like, whiskey sauces for them to try with the sandwich when they picked it up, and uh, I, so I, eventually I was like, well, I should probably do something more because we have the Zoom option now. And once TABC changed the rules where I could actually package cocktails and things uh, for people to take home, I, I began morphing it into like a like an online happy hour, except at night, so like 7:30s on Wednesday. And the first couple were great, but it was you know it was more me talking with consumers. And I think the third one, I, I was like, you know, I should have some bartenders on here because first off, I mean, it'd be nice for me to do something for the bartending community, invite them as guests to enjoy. And then secondly, it'd be a chance for consumers to interact with them and uh, either find out what their bar is doing or how they can support their bar or just kind of keep those connections going. And so uh, it morphed. And, and then I started incorporating specific distillers and guests. And so uh, you're, the one you joined was my actual third, no, fourth one where I've had like an official distiller guest. We had Eddie Russell from Wild Turkey. We had Carlos Camarena from El Tesoro and Ron Cooper from Del Maguey, and we were fortunate enough to have uh, Nelson Hernandez, the master distiller for uh, Diplomatico. And so it, it just kind of gave, to me, gave a chance to kind of focus it on spirits that weren't just the usual big brands that are flying off the liquor store shelves and, and a chance for me to engage with consumers, professionals, and the bar community. So the bar community? Yeah, I try and every week I, I, I try and use uh, any tip money I get during the week for doing things. I usually mm -hmm. try and get back to do stuff for the SOM and the bartending community where I'll invite them to just enjoy food or do something. Mm -hmm. And so I try and, you know, invite at least three or four bartenders every week as my personal guests to join us on the Zoom. And for them to actually get a night where they just get to sit, drink, and talk and you know, chat because like obviously, there's been no community that's probably been hit harder uh, financially mm -hmm. and opportunity-wise in the bartending community. 
Bartenders are the best at putting people at ease and connecting people, which unfortunately right now we don't want people connecting too closely and we don't want them at too at ease because when those things happen, you get careless. Yeah. So, so we're like we're a victim of our own success. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right about that. The um, So how was it for you when this started? How did you take the... Uh, what was March, the, the last two weeks of March and April like for you? You know, it started out as like sheer insanity because we, we, you know, the moment it looked like they were going to shut down the restaurants, we began prepping for the idea we'd have to do takeout. And we're like, well, which of our restaurants can we do takeout? And like for one day they, they were debating whether like Sochi, which is our property downtown and Caracol and the Galleria could stay open under a takeout model. And it was like, it was clear that they couldn't just because of those areas and how dependent they are on business and the amount of labor to run them. So we began shifting all our staff to our two open restaurants, Backstreet and Hugo's, and finding models and mechanisms to take care of the consumers. And, you know, obviously, you don't know if you're going to get a PPP loan. You don't know if there's going to be any support. You know, we, we started trying to find ways immediately to take care of our employees because, I, I mean, I don't care how good a restaurant you are. If you have no income and two of your restaurants are shut down uh, and the others have been reverted to, to takeout business, you can't keep everyone on staff and pay everyone a full salary. And so, you know, we, we did our best to make sure we helped all our staff get unemployment. Uh, we started doing things that we could do to feed the staff, even if they weren't currently working as often as possible. And so it was, it was like a just bewildering, like 24-hour-a-day kind of process. So you were feeding your staff? Yeah, we, we definitely made sure we fed our staff. I mean, we were putting together uh, grocery baskets every week for our staff. Uh, hmm. Our HR department made sure to walk through and help everyone uh, who we couldn't obviously employ at that time, yeah. especially butlers and kitchen workers, dishwashers, uh, how to get on unemployment. We, we didn't leave them to fend for ourselves. We did everything we could. And, you know, uh, heck, since most of the service was done that first two weeks by our, our, you know, our management staff, our salaried employees, like we just kept pooling all those tips to use to buy, you know, things that, and, and to, or just place that money back for the staff that wasn't employed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's great because, uh, there, there was definitely a lot of places that were, uh, doing what they can to, to feed, uh, industry. Um, staff but um, like you said there's only so much that a single place can do and I think whenever you focus on what you can do for your staff you know there's better communication there's a better understanding um, but that's pretty amazing I mean we, it was a working process no one's perfect but you try and take care of the people that have taken care of you and and obviously we did we did a lot of ship meals with Houston ship meal and for for months I've been trying to do meals for out of work bartenders and sommeliers and we have been able to manage that for months through fundraising mechanisms and support with some other groups that I do and obviously liquor brands that have been very supportive and so it's it's just been uh, kind of an endless effort and uh, March and April were like the most intense of it. And then, you know, towards the end of uh, April, you're looking at signs that we might be able to reopen again. And so you start kind of changing your focus a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
So, because, you know, then you're caught in this weird no man's land. I'm like, now the places are open again. Certain types of restaurants will never be uh, as takeout driven, right? Fine dining restaurants or, or even middle tier restaurants like ours will be thought of more for dining than they will takeout. So, as you're shifting your model, you know, you're, that lifeline of takeout was kind of going away to the same degree it had been there for the first two months. Yeah. So, well, and you guys also. Ha- also have the um, HEB. Yeah, which is a nice thing. And so we looked up for partnership. We partnership wherever we could to be able to continue food and, and, and sell product. And, and obviously that, that helps us give extra hours to staff. It helps us bring on more chefs and more people. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I, I had the uh, butterscotch put, red pudding for breakfast today. That actually is a good breakfast, right? <laughs> that is a great breakfast. <laughs> you can always make that into French toast and have yourself a festival. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, so tell me a little bit about the fundraising that you guys have been doing. So for me, I, I mean, I do it on a couple uh, standpoints. I mean, I, I do a, and you participate, I work with Periwinkle Foundation, and we've done a lot of things over the years that the bar and the wine community have helped us do to raise money for children with cancer. And so members of that charity helped me raise money or, or donated money that I could turn around and feed people out of work. And the same thing with liquor brands and, uh, you know, certain things that I've been able to do or, like I said, I mean, I, I try and I try and make sure if I'm getting, you know, tip for what I'm doing now, especially when I'm doing like events and things like that, that I cultivate that back into things that I can do for either our staff or out of work people so that's great that's, that's been my best mechanisms and so then you so sochi and caracol you shut that down because it's so labor intensive and then the food tends to be more delicate in, in particular um so then how how are you going about and, and there was no business i mean literally there's no one downtown and for a while there was no one in the gallery because all those offices were closed so we did get Caracol opened. Uh, it came probably like three weeks after uh, Hugo's and Backstreet, almost a month after those two. And it's open now on limited hours. It's open the least amount. We haven't yet got Sochi opened up because, like I said, there's no one in downtown. And Sochi was a restaurant designed to feed off of Discovery Green and the hotel and the convention center and the Astros and the Rockets and all those reasons that people went to downtown. It was right in the middle of all of those. And so, you know, with none of that going on, it, it makes kind of running a restaurant like that, which, which doing real Mexican food, let alone Oaxacan food, is extraordinarily labor-intensive. And so it's an expensive cuisine to create, to, to, to do right. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about the, the different concepts. So uh, Backstreet's our oldest. It's a new American two-story house with a giant patio in the River Oaks. And uh, more wine-driven, although we, we've always done a great cocktail program there. We were one of the first places in Houston to really go for the seasonal and the craft cocktail model. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not that my guests understood it, but, you know, like 20 years ago, I was trying to serve people Negronis. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, we were we were kind of at the forefront of that. And then uh, a few years after I joined Backstreet, uh, we decided we were going to create Hugo's, which was an interior cuisine of Mexican restaurant, kind of in the world of Tex-Mex. So mm-hmm. it was going to be the, 
that place in Houston where we made tortillas to order from corn we ground from scratch, and we made moles, mm. and we made uh, shaked margaritas to order, and we didn't do anything frozen. And so uh, that one kind of is in the Montrose area and has been very well received locally, statewide, and nationally. And then about six years ago, we uh, decided to create a, a, a coastal Mexican restaurant that would put more of the emphasis on the, the wealth of seafood and wood grill cooking. And probably, arguably, I think our most beautiful restaurant, we opened up Caracol over in the Galleria area, uh, you know, just off of uh, Post Oak Boulevard, and underneath the Bank of Spain. And that, that's been a, a very unique, well-celebrated restaurant. I think it uh, has massively influenced cooking in this town where so many people started, like, wood grilling like us and wood oven roasting and you know making more baked oyster dishes in the vein we were doing so and then uh, uh almost uh well this this coming january will be four years almost four years ago we uh opened up uh sochi which is a oaxacan restaurant in downtown houston that you know focused on all the elements of oaxacan cuisine which is to us is the cultural heart of cuisine in Mexico and, and reverberates throughout the country is the birthplace of mole and agave and chocolate and masa. So. Right now, where do you guys stand? I mean, are you doing mostly uh, dining or mostly still takeout? How's the takeout? No, it, it's, I mean, we still do takeout. In fact, we're doing uh, this month is Houston Restaurant Weeks and, and doing a lot of it takeout. Uh, we are very spaced out at all the restaurants, and we have patios, right? And even on our patios, we took a lot of tables out, so that's provided a, a sanctuary for people to go. Obviously, you'll never do the numbers you do right now that you did, you know, uh, a year ago, right? Right. And so we're doing what we can. We keep emphasizing takeout, you know, and uh, uh, Hugo's probably does the most consistent takeout business because that, like, that type of cuisine, you know, chips and salsa and barbacoa and carnitas, uh Caracol does uh, some and does caterings and stuff like that. And then Backstreet does some. And, you know, Backstreet, I've done a lot of emphasis on doing these Zoom nights. So where people come in and pick up kits. So like every Saturday I do 40, 45 couples picking up wine dinner kits. And on Wednesdays we do our spirits theme night. And we have individuals coming in to pick up their food and spirits kit. Wow. So, I mean, for, for, for a, a slow... <laughs> I mean, for, for the, the, the disruption that the industry has uh, been dealing with over the last five months, I mean, you sound pretty, pretty busy. I'm probably busier than ever, but that, that's because I'm working so hard to generate traffic and right. to generate things I can do for my fellow industry people. So for me personally, and, and then I'm also a wine concierge, you know, I'm... I'm uh, I will sell wine out the door, so I'm putting together kits and wine orders for people and things like that. So, yeah, there's uh, probably more hats than ever for me, and I'm juggling more than ever. So, uh, <laughs> you know, COVID has not been relaxing for me. It's been <laughs> stressful and a lot of work. So, Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and um, and bring, me, and bring us uh, up to date to what you're doing. I think that uh, you have... You have a great model of how to approach the uh, the current situation, and in particular that Zoom tasting. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was smart, like you just mentioned. It, it really didn't take any effort on my part, other than driving to and then logging on. Those were the only two things that I had to do uh, for it. So, very smart. Oh 
glad you enjoyed it. And it was a it was a pleasure to have you on there. I was I was a little sad to see that the main has been trimmed. <laughs> that was looking pretty ferocious there, my friend. I was like, I was like we need to get a local, uh, we need to get a local uh, version of uh, Carlito's wig on and re- recast her with David there. <laughs> Man, that thing. Uh, it, once it becomes maintenance, then uh, for me, it's like, all right, it's it's got to go. It, two things: maintenance and summer. Once those yeah, t- those two things you know cross those two lines cross, I'm like, all right, it's time for it to go. It still looked pretty ferocious, though. I gotta say, that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was uh, you were you were working it well, as they say. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, that was a, that was a lot of fun. And so, anytime, my friend. So I wish you the the best of luck to uh, you and, and and the the restaurant group, um, and uh, love to have you again sometime. Absolutely, sir, and we hope to see you again soon. All right. Take care, brother. Right, take care, my friend. Bye. Well, guys, uh, make sure that you um, support your local restaurants and bars in whatever way that you can, if you can. Um, please make sure that you go about this in the safest way possible. We are still in a pandemic, and there are still people uh, in our community that are suffering through this, whether it's financial or through um, physically sick uh, with the COVID-19. And leading into that, there is the, um, the uh, Thirst Group, which is a hospitality uh, industry uh, group that is a nonprofit looking to advocate for the industry as a whole. Uh, next week, I'll be having Nate Casablancas on the show, um, and we'll be talking about the advocacy that the industry needs in order to get the same opportunities as other uh, other businesses and, and other industries in, in this country. We are not considered as a single industry in, in Congress and in, in these decisions that are made by whether it's governors or senators. And we have to be able to have a solid voice. We're 12 million people, um, citizens, uh, labor force. Um, you know, blue-collar labor, labor force in this country, that uh, we can have a very loud voice. And this is important because it is a job that allows you to put food on the table. This is not, what are you going to do after this? And even then, even if you are doing this while you're going to college or in between jobs, this is allowing you to put food on the table. And right now, we've been shut down for good reason, um, I'm not criticizing that. What I am criticizing, though, is the fact that many other industries have uh, been bailed out whenever they needed it or whenever they put themselves in positions that they shouldn't have been. And this, through no fault of our own, has taken away our livelihood and our ability to take care of ourselves. So as taxpayers, as part of uh, communities, because that is what we are. We are a community in itself. We are, we 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 participate in 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 the gathering of other commu- communities, whether it's ours or not. By the way that we uh, in the hospitality industry have restaurants and bars, and, and we allow people to be comfortable in those places. They get to meet their neighbors. They get to meet with family. They get to to do all the things that takes the focus away from cleaning up and having to cook at home 
um, you know, we take care of that part so they way that way they can uh, just enjoy each other's company. And the fact is, is we are part of these communities. Um, there's plenty of you that have been at the same job for many years and your regulars know you. You are part of their day. You're part of their of their week, weekly routine or monthly routine. They see you on a regular basis. And I think that our industry needs to start thinking a bit more long term. I know that we have, through many years, consistently attracted the people that are thinking about how much money am I going to make in this sh- one shift. And you're thinking one day at a time. But you start need to start thinking longer term than that because if this is your livelihood, if this is what you have been doing for a while, then you have to make sure that it's well represented within the the powers that be, the, the powers of the purse. So anyhow, I'll have that conversation with Nate and, uh, and then we'll go from there. But uh, I'll put the links for uh, his site and for um, Sean Beck's information uh, on the comment section. If you have a smart device, you can listen on Alexa. Um, you can ask for the open bar experience also we have our own website which is openbar.space you can check us out also on your favorite app whether it is iHeartRadio, TuneIn, uh, stitcher or apple Podcasts. check it out the open bar experience remember take care of yourself take care of each other and keep the conversation going <laughs>